This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. In a previous episode of the Waters and Harvey Show, I quoted Thomas Paine, who once said that if we take the time to reflect, we grow brave. Well, Marcus and I want to continue that conversation on today's show. So stick with us and we'll be back in a moment. Again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters, and as always, so happy to have you all join us in the audience. And once again, I'm very pleased and happy to not be sitting here alone, but here with my brother, Dr. Marcus Harvey. Marcus, how's it going? I'm doing pretty well. We're approaching the end of the semester, so I'm trying to stay afloat. How about you? I'm doing the same, yeah. but it's, it's real good. You know, Marcus and I, we, we have to tell our listeners, yeah, I'm having a really good time when I uh, end up meeting people on the streets, mm-hmm. Are at events that that we go to sometimes, and people talk to us about the show, and they keep telling us, you know, we get a lot out of the show. Don't stop doing the show, mm-hmm. and um, so, you know, Marcus, I, I, you and I have talked before that taking the time to kind of sit down and reflect on some of these past shows is mm-hmm. something that we really needed to do. You and I have also said that uh, there's something very therapeutic about us coming into the studio <laughs> and sitting here and talking. Yeah. It's like a refreshing moment for us. Yeah, right? I think so, because, you know, our, our line of work as professors, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, can tend to be somewhat isolating. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes it becomes difficult for that reason to remain connected to close friends and colleagues and to, and to keep alive conversations that you've been having. For, for for a period of time, so I think this this um, this space the space of the radio show provides an opportunity to sort of reconnect in it ways does. that can be uh, refreshing and also energizing intellectually. Yeah, yeah, you and I have been having conversations for a while privately, and we just in some ways we've taken those private conversations public. Yeah. You know, by yeah. having them on the air. Um, I mean, you have stretched my thinking on a number of things. Likewise, and we both have you know had big influence <laughs> yeah. on each other, and some of the guests that we have come in and talk with us from time to time, it really stretches us intellectually as well. Mm -hmm. And I've been so happy to have these conversations with people who are doing work in real time, Mm -hmm. you know, real life experiences, people who are working in the community to better the community. And I think it's, you know, it's fitting that we would take the time to sit back and talk about that. But Marcus, I think about this uh, quote from Thomas Paine, who, who said that, you know, we can grow brave from reflection. How do you grow brave from reflection? What do you think he meant by that? That's a great question. I, I mentioned on a previous show that reflection can be understood understood as a kind of discipline, something that requires effort, focus, intentionality. Uh, and I, I, I would wager that part of what pain might have meant is that serious, careful reflection um, forces you to confront some realities that absent reflection uh, you may not be prone to confront Mm -hmm. Um, realities that may be uncomfortable realities that may be uh, that may even cast you or that which you care about in not so great a light Um, um, you know reflection can result I think in in uh, realizations that one needs to grow in certain directions um, directions that one may not want to to grow in so so I, I think in some uh, what pain may be suggesting is that um, serious disciplined reflection isn't necessarily a fun thing to do mm-hmm. um, sometimes it could be 
difficult, painful, um, sometimes even frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yet this is precisely this those sorts of experiences um, sort of represent a large part of what is involved in the process of growing right. intellectually, psychologically, spiritually, and and really as a whole person. So mm-hmm. so so my my guess would be the pain was sort of edging in that direction um, by by, by making this claim about reflection. I tend to agree because I I think, again, here, when I think about reflection, I can't help but think about um, Dr. John Hope Franklin's autobiography and the title of that autobiography, which is Mirror to America. And, you know, sitting there, taking the time to look in the mirror and look at who we are. Mm -hmm. So we can see the successes. We can see the failures. And as you were uh, saying what you had to say about Payne's uh, comment about bravery from reflection, Marcus, I couldn't help but think about, um, you know, reflection, sometimes we see the flaws. Mm -hmm. We see the mistakes that we've made. I know that you and I take time to reflect upon the shows that we do from time to time, and we'll listen. We'll listen to the shows, and like I could have said that different. I could have done that mm. different. But reflection, you know, um, you know, it is difficult because sometimes mm. we don't want to see those flaws. Mm. Um, but I think it is helpful, and it is incumbent upon us to do that. I also think about who is it? Was it Plato? Or was it Socrates who said <laughs> the unexamined life isn't worth living? Mm. living? Um, Americans, I think, in the, in the culture that we live in, that at least it has been said by some that we're not a very reflective people. Mm. You know, until we're forced to do it, we don't reflect it, that there is constant movement in our mm. society and we're constantly pushing for, for the next thing, um, are, you know, working towards the next big thing, the next success that mm. we want to have. So we don't really take the time to sit back and reflect upon where we've come from, where we're in, you know, which will give us some insight into where we're going. Yeah, and also what I would add to that is I, I think that the the ethos, um, the atmosphere created by uh, capitalism, quite mm-hmm. frankly, um, is conducive to what you just described, mm-hmm. right? This sort of environment where it's it's well reflection is not valued um, unless it uh, it leads towards some tangible, profitable result. Um, so I think there's a way in which in which in which American capitalism uh, and the culture that it creates uh, makes reflection something that it that isn't obviously of value mm-hmm. uh, to persons, uh, communities, and to broader society. Um, and so I, I I think it's important to keep that in mind. What I would add also, though, is that I think that this 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 discipline, this this practice. Uh, we we may even refer to it as a, as a sign of as a kind of ritual, mm-hmm. um, but reflection as ritual, as practice, as discipline, I think becomes especially important for marginalized communities mm-hmm. like the African American community, um, in part be- in large part because um, our identities um, as American citizens for centuries. Um, have been constructed for us, mm-hmm. right? Our memories have been constructed for us. Um, so, in other words, other people's perceptions of us have been deposited into our minds, right? And those and, and those deposits are all the time, every day, uh, exerting an influence upon how we think about ourselves, how we uh, appraise ourselves, how we understand our role in the community and, and, and in the broader society. And so I think it becomes in some ways even more incumbent, 
even more incumbent upon African Americans uh, to really cultivate this mm-hmm. skill of disciplined reflection and make it a part of their of their of their daily existence. Um, I, I would also add uh, as well that um, if one sort of a, so so. Um, another factor that contributes to this, to this, to, 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 uh, to the importance of, of reflection becoming a sort of common practice um, in the black community has to do with uh, uh, American religious history mm-hmm. with respect to um, the ways in which African Americans have received um, American Protestantism. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in many ways. You know, as a, as a result of the vicissitudes of slavery and a host of other factors, um, African American, many African Americans um, over the course of centuries came to identify increasingly with um, the Protestant Church, mm-hmm. right? And the question of who are we on the cultural level has often been supplanted by the question of well. What do I believe in religiously, mm-hmm. right? Um, and at that point, you know, what many of us do if we just sort of we drop in some biblical narrative or we drop in some biblical figure, right? Um, and in many ways, that, that, uh, that exempts us from the hard burden of reflecting on our cultural history in this country, mm-hmm. our social history, and the ways in which those histories might connect to other parts of the world across the Atlantic Ocean right. like West Africa. And so my point here, again, is that I think that I think that the the burden of reflection is particularly acute um, and and desperately needed uh, for African Americans. Right, I, yeah. Marcus. I tend to agree as you as, as I was listening to to you there. I couldn't help but think about a question that I often ask students, um, and especially within the framework of the liberal arts education, which we are trying to get people to think critically, to think more broadly, to engage other cultural traditions, to try to understand those, and at the same time, you know, asking the question: Who is defining who you are? Are you making decisions yourself that define you or is it being defined by some outside force or outside forces? And to take the time to think about that question, like you said, it does require essentially hard work. Mm -hmm. It requires... I would also argue uh, in, an engagement with the past, mm-hmm. right, uh, to consider um, what has been written about the past, um, to consider I would also, you know, as a historian, I'm encouraging, always encouraging my students to engage primary source material. Mm-hmm. What have people written about in the past? What have they written about their own experiences? Mm-hmm. And um, and reading that and engaging it. Now, you and I had this conversation with Keenan Lake. It was the conversation that you and I, we built off of the last time that we did a reflection show to talk about Keenan and, and just again as a reminder to our audience to you all many of you probably know Keenan uh, Keenan is someone who works you know is very active in our local community here runs the program my daddy taught me that his now new wife Keenan and Leslie uh, just got married not too long ago and uh, his uh, Leslie works very closely with Keenan, and she runs a program called My Sister That, where she she works with um, local uh, black, um, basically minority girls in this program. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, and at some point we need to sit down and have a conversation sure, with her. Sure. But just thinking about Keenan and the hard work that he's doing, there's some things in that conversation that we've already talked about that really stood out to us and a number of things that we did not get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marcus, one of the things, and, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this because you and I talked about this in depth after we did that show with uh, with Keenan. One of the things he talked about within African-American communities is the lack of men in the households. Mm-hmm. Now, we know if you if we go back, you know, just a little over 50 years ago, I guess it would be maybe 51, 51 years ago, I think it was 1967, when Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was working mm-hmm. in the uh, in the Johnson administration, he was in the Labor Department, issued his report on the black family in the United States. And if you go back and look at that report, which you can access by just looking it up on, on the Internet, he talked about the problems, this particular problem within and within African American families. Um, you know, the, you look into that report. I don't think that he linked it very well with the problem of the experience of slavery because it has its roots there. Mm-hmm. But he did talk about this problem, and this makes me think again, Marcus, of Michelle Alexander, who we had mm-hmm. here in Asheville not too long ago, who talked about the the prison pipeline uh, mm-hmm. from schools. You know, many African American males who are in that pipeline. I worked for a time in the criminal justice system here in North Carolina as a probation parole officer. And I can attest to the fact that this mm-hmm. is, you know, many African-American males who get trapped in in this system and it becomes very difficult for them to get out. So Keenan raised that point mm-hmm. about the lack of African-American men. But I, I'm grateful for the fact when I reflect back on my own family mm-hmm. uh, history, Father was there. Um, grandfathers were there. These were men who were very active in their community. Mm-hmm. I heard Kenan loud and clear when we asked him the question about what would his wish list be. And he said to get men or to get people just to volunteer mm-hmm. to work in the program. I mm-hmm. thought that that was something that we really needed to think about. Yeah, this is a really, really big issue, um, um, the, the, the issue of, of fathers in African-American Households, I think you're right. I, I think that this problem does have roots in American chattel slavery. What I would add to that, though, and I'm, I'm sort of curious to get your take on this as a historian. Um, but what I would add to that, though, is the notion shared by some uh, cultural critics and scholars that um, that this issue is also linked to the rise of the American welfare state, mm-hmm. right after oh. after the Great Depression, yeah. right, mm-hmm. um, which which essentially created created a socioeconomic environment where. Uh, you know, quite frankly, um, African-American uh, mothers were incentivized by the state mm-hmm. um, to to not insist upon the presence of fathers in the household. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the state would then step in and essentially subsidize African-American households. So I think there may, there may be a connection here to be made between uh, the state's decision to subsidize federally. African American families and the um, the the relative absence of, of black fathers in so many African American households. Mm-hmm. Uh, something else I would add is that, which, which I think is interesting, is that um, as you noted earlier, you know this issue has roots in slavery. However, uh, it, it's interesting how sort of say say before the Great Depression, African American families seem to be more intact relatively speaking, than they were after the Great Depression, mm-hmm. right? Um, more intact than they were, say, after integration. Um, I would even argue that, that it, it, may be, it may be true to some degree that, that there, was, there was a more um, 
cohesive nuclear nuclear family unit even immediately after slavery mm-hmm. during reconstruction right where you where you have black families finding ways to reconstitute themselves finding ways to educate their children finding ways to 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 penetrate the american political sphere mm-hmm. uh you know finding ways to make economic gains um and so yeah I, I think this is a very complicated issue you're absolutely right um you know this whole prison to pipeline phenomena is mm-hmm. a major major problem uh but anyway I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on on, on this notion yeah on the, and you know you bring up this issue of the of the uh, the welfare state and the rise of the welfare state which begins to rise you know exponentially after mm-hmm. the the great depression and then we get to the 1960s in the period that we talked about with mm-hmm. the issuing of Daniel Patrick Moynihan's report on on the black family because you know he, they were concerned at that time with many of the riots that were taking place throughout throughout the United States the 1960s was just one of those decades where oh, man so much was going on we think about two uh, Kennedy assassinations mm-hmm. in in that decade, um, and then you know Robert Kennedy who was assassinated in sixty eight, King in sixty seven. I mean, Malcolm X in yeah, in Malcolm X. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. this is this is uh, one of those troubling decades. And I remember there there's one historian I can't remember his name, who who referred to this decade and especially the year of nineteen sixty eight after Kennedy is Robert Kennedy is is assassinated. He referred to it as that hideous year in the slum of a decade. And so there's so much that is going on in this period um, that that is so trying when we look at it. But this is also the period of the expansion of the welfare state in the context of LBJ's Great Society program mm-hmm. and what that looks like. And people have gone back and assessed, you know, what were results uh, of of the Great Society program? You know, how beneficial was it really? What did it do to communities and families? And these are major questions that people are still talking about, still trying to to address. We also know here, and this is a conversation that we hear quite frequently here in our local community, that within the context of the Great Society programs, you had urban renewal and the removal of, of people from 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 spaces that they had traditionally, you know, lived in. And what is the trauma of that of that process? Being we think and Marcus, I think I think that this is a relevant thing for us to bring up and in some ways Keenan brought it up as well mm-hmm. in that conversation because we are now experiencing the forces of gentrification, which is uh, essentially again a, a new form of urban renewal um that is occurring. And but I think people's attachment to place is something that we need to reflect upon. You know, what is the meaning of space? So Keenan raises this point about the welfare state when he talked about, you know, we're teaching many, uh, many African-American men, uh, boys as they're raising that, that as they're growing up and coming along that, hey, you know, I don't have to work. There's going to be somebody there to kind of take care of the things I need to take care of. Keenan raised that point, and I think it it is something that we truly, truly need to have a conversation about and consider. Yeah, this is this is this is a big a big issue, um, and I, I'm not I'm not exactly sure how to go about um, redressing it, or even if it can be redressed ultimately. But I would say that I think there's something to learn by sort of looking back. Right. At the Mm -hmm. period before integration, going back to, say, Reconstruction in the period immediately following Reconstruction, where um, despite really just tremendous, tremendously negative odds, Mm -hmm. um, 
African-Americans were able to find a way um, in pockets. I'm not saying this was the case nationwide, but were able to find a way in pockets to work together and mobilize um, in order to defend black families, um, gain access to political power, uh, work towards the education of their children, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder if there may be a model that we can learn from mm -hmm. by looking back to that period, we looking can. back to Reconstruction. I know that many people mm -hmm. don't like to go back to the Civil War period or the period thereafter, you mm -hmm. know, when we see the rise of the Black Codes and after that, Jim Crow laws and lynching and all of that. Um, I, 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 I wonder if there's something um, there that could serve as a kind of template uh, for how we can think about um, the kind of issue that we're raising here and the, and the kind of issues that Keenan raised when he was on the show right. um, about about the really the fragmentation of of the African-American right. family in many contexts. And Marcus, right. I, I think so. You, you just so that we can our audience can, you know, uh, have something that they can go and look mm -hmm. at you know, tangible. Um, I would like to reference here uh, Herbert Gutman's book. I thought about his book, uh, right. The Black Family and Slavery and Freedom, mm -hmm. uh, a very important book that looks looks at, you know, the role that the black family played from the period of slavery all the way up into I think he goes into the mid 20th century with mm -hmm. that book. It's a big book, but it is a book that it is easily accessible. Anybody can read this book, and, and you learn a lot from that book. Um, and I think that you'll see real examples. You're talking mm -hmm. about reflecting. This is why I believe that reflection is important, because it gets us to look back, to look back to the past. And I think that if people engage that particular text, that they will see that there are real examples out there, as you're talking about, that might be serve as models mm -hmm. for us now. Um, I also think, Marcus, about, um, you know, in the United States, one of the things I think that is unique about the experiences here, and early writers uh, saw this. And again, I can't help but reference um, Alexis de Tocqueville, who I think was one of the best and most keen observers of the American experience early on. I marvel at the fact that his work still is so relevant to where we are today, uh, democracy in America. But he talked about the fact that one of the unique features of the United States was that the people in individual communities seemed to be less dependent on the government. And what they did was try to find ways through private associations to better their community life, to strengthen the structures of their communities. So if we look back at this earlier period of Reconstruction, I think that he was right because you see these private associations which are doing within the African-American community. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that was in the context of church. Uh, sometimes it, you know, in the, in the later part of the 19th century and going into the 20th century, you have the, the Rosenwald schools, which many people are talking about now. Even though Julius Rosenwald had some, uh, some motivations for why he was doing this, mm -hmm. what is amazing is that he wasn't just freely given philanthropic money to African-American communities, that they were raising money to match the money that Julius Rosenwald was giving to build these schools. Mm -hmm. um, during this period, African Americans, as we know, if you study that period of Reconstruction, were willing to tax themselves in mm -hmm. order to support school systems. I mean, education was important. And Marcus, when I think about that, it brings to mind another statement that Keenan made in the course of that conversation. Remember, he said that the title for his organization came from the title of a book that he had written um, called My Daddy Taught Me That. And he said then he was told by someone, we don't read. And, I, you know, that, that statement stayed with me when, when Keenan said that. Um, 
you know, what do you do with that? Do are, are we are reading people? I think there was a time when we read, you know, I marvel at my own sons who spend most of their time with electronic devices and, mm-hmm. and doing all types of things. But I'm trying to get them to pick up a book and read a book, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but Keenan made this statement. Keenan put it out there. And I thought, mm, we've got to go back and talk about that. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really tough one. Uh, that, that's a really tough one. I think that there are a number of ways to approach that question. Um, one, one may have to do with the fact that, um, you know, a large part of the African-American experience in this country has been focused on survival, right? How do we, how do we, how are we going to survive um, in face of, you know, America's long legacy of anti-black domestic terrorism, right? So, I mean, that, that's, that's one issue. Another would be um, possibly that I, I think that, once African-Americans gain access to the uh, the middle class sort of economic strata of the country um, and we're able to enjoy right some of the um, the uh, the wealth, so to speak, um, um, of, of American society, uh, maybe there's a way in which certain forms of education became less of a priority. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe lifelong education through reading, through self-study became less of a priority. Um, to fast forward a bit into the sort of uh, contemporary era, era, and I've had this conversation with with, with others, um, students and, and other colleagues. I think the rise, I think the advent of the internet and the rise of social media um, has actually discouraged, in many ways, within our community, has actually discouraged a commitment to to reading, right? To reading for self edification, mm-hmm. to reading in order to. Um, reflect more deeply in, in the ways that we were discussing earlier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that I think that there's a constellation of factors that that um, that may at least in part account for what seems to be um, uh, an aversion <laughs> throughout much of our community uh, to reading. And I think, Marcus, as you said that, I'm reflecting and I'm thinking about um, an, a story that I know that was broadcast on in, on NPR mm-hmm. that talked about uh, reading and teaching children to read, and that by the time they get to the third grade, you should not you should be reading for comprehension, not mm-hmm. learning to read, but for comprehension. And I think that this is something that we need to think about because mm-hmm. um, and it, it because that that serves as a, a clear marker for how people are how students will do as they. Move Move through the rest of their educational career. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I appreciate about the time that I spent with John Hope Franklin was that even at nine ninety-five, um, our my last visit with him was when he uh, was ninety-five. He died at ninety-five, not too too long after we had that final conversation. And I spent about two hours with him. And the one thing that I marveled at in that conversation, this was three months before his death, where he actually made the statement. He said, "Darren, I'm still learning." He said that um, the more I know, he said, the more I come to realize how much I don't know. You know, there's so much more that I don't know. And he was even in his own work, he was beginning to explore new areas of historical inquiry. Mm-hmm. He was beginning to look into to develop a deeper understanding of women's history. And I'm thinking to myself. You know, at 95, you're seeing someone still sitting here saying that education is important, continuing to mm-hmm. learn. And I heard I heard Keenan say that. And I think that as we think about Keenan's program and we think about some of the things that Keenan talked about needing, that he, you know, 
volunteers who can get out and help to encourage the young kids that he has in this program to get out uh, to to learn to enjoy reading, to enjoy learning, and that it can be uh, open up a world to you is something that is important for us to consider. Yeah, and I think this I, I think this commitment to to the, the Keenan the Keenan's work embodies. It, it really reminds me of of the focus of Carter G. Wilson's work. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Because Carter G. Woodson, despite his his illustrious credentials, uh, Woodson was focused on reaching the black masses, Mm -hmm. the black masses. Right. Right. Um, For precisely the kinds of purposes that you referenced in in relation to John Ho Franklin. Right. Mm -hmm. Lifelong learning and education about who we are as a people, um, historically, culturally, socially. So, Marcus, I think that that's a good place to end this and Mm -hmm. to end this conversation, to reflect upon that. And these, those are all things that came up in that conversation with with Kenan. And we encourage you to go back and listen to that particular show and support Kenan's program, Kenan Lake. My daddy taught me that. So, Marcus and I, again, thank you for joining us. And we want to remind you that the Waters and Harvest Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR org on the BPR mobile app and on iTunes and Google Play. Follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter. And again, Marcus and I appreciate you listening. Bye-bye. Take care.